HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with an episode about memory. I've always read and sort of approached cookbooks for more than the recipes. To me, they are full of narrative content and narrative value. So Malama Aina basically means to take care of the land. For us as Hawaiians, it's taking care of our older sibling. But I do remember like definitely feeling like self-conscious about it, like being the only one who kind of wasn't eating a sandwich and like didn't have a bag of goldfish or Lunchables. Listen to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to have a very interesting discussion about water, a discussion that I barely understood uh, in formulating the questions. So um, my guest, uh, who is Steve Suppan, who works, uh, is a policy analyst at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, where he has been since 1994. Uh, Steve's work is divided into three coordinated parts, research, policy advocacy, and participation in coalition activities. And much of that work has been related to trade policy, which is why he is our guest today. He's going to be helping us to understand this uh, sort of new world of water markets. Anyway, he does things like explain U.S. agricultural biotechnology regulation and food safety policy to governmental and non-governmental organizations in about 35 countries. Whoa, Steve. So from 2000 to 2004, he represented Consumers International at meetings of the Codex Alimentarius Commission, uh, which is the international food standards body, a very important body indeed. And in 2008, during the Wall Street bankruptcies and the global food price crisis, he began to study the relation between commodity price movements and market deregulation. And in 2010, Steve submitted the first of many regulatory comment letters about rules proposed by the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission. And since 2010, Steve has represented the IATP at usually weekly meetings of Americans for financial reform. So welcome, Steve. And I'm sorry I had to get I mean, I couldn't give the whole bio or we would have spent the entire show reading your bio. I mean, you are a man of many parts. And then on top of that, your college degree was... um, in philosophy or something. I mean, 
Talk yeah, about well, a man, a Renaissance man. Well, I mean, it's you know, it's 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 been a long time, and there's a lot of uh, learning by doing. But yes, sure. Since uh, since the 2008 um, Wall Street bankruptcies, um, I've been working on commodity market regulation. Right. And, and so um, the um, this Waters Futures contract, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange put out was uh, it, it caught my eye because it's the first ever water futures contract. that Right. And that's what I caused know. me to contact you because you published an article about it in the IATP you know, newsletter in March. In case people want to see this, um, they should know that it, I forget the date in March it was, but it's called Futurizing Water Prices um, and it has a subtitle. And so um, and, and that's what really caught my eye because the whole idea of uh, trading water on the futures market scared the bejesus out of me. So first, Steve, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to roll back for a second and just give people a little thumbprint of, of, of the article. You started to say something about, you know, this first contract that came up in March, right, which is or January. And then you wrote uh, about yeah, it in it March. Started, it started to trade in January. Yeah. So what does that mean, actually? What, what are we talking about when we talk about trading water on a futures market? What does that mean? Well, so first you have to understand that uh, uh, futures markets or derivatives markets in general uh, trade on the basis of an underlying asset. And in this case, uh, the underlying asset is a price index of uh, water sales in uh, four um, subterranean water basins in California, and then the surface water market. And so a company in London, um, Bailey's Water, composed this price index looking at um, sales of water over X number of years, and I don't know how many years uh, off the top of my head. And so they proposed to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange that um, uh, water price, water prices could be uh, an interest, uh, could be of interest to investors who are not themselves water users, uh, as well as, you know, commercial water users for the purpose of figuring out uh, what, you know, what price should I be paying for water six months from now, for example. Well, but do people's water rates like, OK, I have my own well, so I, you know, and in New York City, I didn't pay for water. <clears throat> but I know that people in, you know, small towns, I know, like, for instance, in my small town in Wakefield, Rhode Island, people do pay a monthly water bill to the Suez Water Company, which that's another story. But anyway, but they they're not allowed to jack those prices up and down and left and right and sideways, are they? I mean, don't they have to pretty much stick with a rate at least for a year and then there'll be a rate increase because, you know, somebody's pipe blew up or, you know, the pump failed or something like that. I mean, the water market isn't that volatile right now. Like the way people pay for water right now is not that volatile, is it? Well, it depends what part of the country you're in. Uh, really? Because uh, right now in... Um, in the western part of the United States, mm -hmm. uh, water uh, water rights have been 
um, uh, separated from land rights. Historically, water rights uh, were attached with land rights. So if you bought a piece of land, you had uh, the right to use, you know, the streams or yeah. the wells or whatever what ran through that. Well, um, because of, um, you know, this huge water use uh, in the West, especially to develop cities really in the middle of, of water scarce areas, I mean, Phoenix, Los, Los Angeles, Angeles, Los Angeles yeah. and so on and so forth. <clears throat> Um, you have the development of um, a water, you know, a water sales market on the basis of water transfer rights in legal compacts, and um, you know, with the uh, with the onset of longer droughts, more severe droughts. Um, what is now in California, uh, a year round fire season. Yeah. Um, there is, you know, interest in trying to, uh, well, on the one hand, uh, anticipate water prices. And on the other hand, uh, transfer water from, uh, from rural areas to, uh, to urban areas. Uh-huh. Um, and so this is where uh, another article in the New York Times in December caught my eye where a, a hedge fund had bought up uh, water rights along the Colorado River uh, to be able to transfer water um, from the Colorado River to um, to Phoenix. Well, to some suburbs around Phoenix. To, right. You know, like they were developing, I think I kind of remember this. They were developing a new, um, you know, housing tracts or, you know, housing right. development projects. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they needed to bring water into those places. And so they purchased that water so they could run a pipeline from the Colorado River Basin or whatever, wherever it is, uh, into that particular tract of land. Is that right? Correct. But, I, I wanted to, I wanted to, a little, we're jumping a little bit ahead, but I, I just, I want to kind of nail down like the whole first right of usage and the water laws are very arcane, especially out in the West, right? And so how much has that changed? You just alluded to the idea that it's, it's now easier for people to buy water rights than to go through what usually, what traditionally was if you bought land, then you had first refusal of the water and then the next person was able to get some sort of right to it. You know what I mean? Like you could, it was kind of like a first come first serve. If you owned it, you owned the water and then people had to deal with you. And, and somehow those laws have not been upgraded particularly uh, substantially since the 19th century, if I'm not mistaken. Well, um, the, the water compact, uh, water compacts in Western states <coughs> uh, work pretty well as long as everybody, you know, maintained, a reasonable use of water. There's actually a legal doctrine. I'm not a, I'm not a water a water uh, policy expert or a water lawyer, but mm-hmm. you know I've just done you know some reading in the in the water law, and prior to um, the last you know the last couple decades, there was enough water to go around, and so you had what to my mind are um, somewhat unreasonable uses of certainly unreasonable uses of water from a agronomic viewpoint because most water use is um, 
irrigated water for agriculture. And right. a lot of the crops were grown in semi-desert conditions. Mm -hmm. So rather than, um, you know, growing crops where there would be, you know, less water dependence, um, or excuse me, less uh, ir irrigation dependence, where you would have um, more regular, uh, uh, you know, rainwater precipitation, they depended, you know, overwhelmingly on uh, on irrigated water and some of the, tra you know, traveling, either traveling distance or from very, very deep wells. And, and these you know, right. wells, the aquifers uh, were being drained at a rate greater than, you know, what could be uh, replenished by, by rain. And so you had this declining water cycle and that became, uh, you know, scarcity provided, so to speak, a motive for um, the claim to be able to manage water better if you could just determine the right price for water. Okay. And so that's what the um, the various versions of of water markets. Uh, I think. Oh shucks! I, I know more about in the in in the United States, but apparently there are some water markets and other. Uh, parts of the world that are likewise water scarce. So that that has created the water market and, and the idea of selling futures of this water market is to try to stabilize the price ultimately? Um, futures markets do not stabilize prices. I mean, stabilizing prices are really, it's really a function of, of government. Okay. What the, what the futures markets do so you are in, in, a, in a futures market you have a highly specified contract and the contract um you know gives a description fairly detailed description um of the commodity uh that is the underlying basis for the contract so in this case um there's uh a a combination of this water price index uh, times, um, I think it's 10 acre feet of water, which I think is 320,000 gallons or something like that. So yep. that's the basic contract unit. And um, because there's no, there's no uh, position limit on water. So in theory, a hedge fund could, you know, buy up uh, as many contracts uh, as it could find a seller for. Um, the, the way that these contracts, this particular contract works, is described in 19 pages. Uh, yeah. um, and it's uh, 19 pages where the Chicago Mercantile Exchange is self-certifying that it is in compliance with all the rules of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. And I, I was surprised that it was a self-certified contract because I, as far as I knew, it was a novel contract. And I would think that you would have to go through a formal approval process, um, you know, to have the staff of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission review uh, the claims made by both the um, Valley's Water you know, Company about the integrity of its price index yep and then also um 
you know, whether whether the contract as described actually was consistent uh, with the CFTC um, uh, rules or what they call also the core principles or whether the contract could be susceptible to market manipulation. Yeah, that and, would be my uh, concern. <laughs> and one, thing, one thing that struck me when I, I first read about the, this contract, an article in the Financial Times, and the executive director of the California Farm Water Association said that he didn't think that many commercial users uh, would find the contract interesting. I mean, he just didn't think it would help them make judgments about um, at what price to buy or sell water right. uh, in California. He thought that the contract would be of greatest interest to financial speculators. Yes, and that would lead in my, I mean, I as I have obviously demonstrated to you by now, I really don't understand this very well. Um, but yes, that would be my concern, that this would be subject to intense manipulation um, by people who want to basically make a quick buck. I mean, and, and then also you, you alluded to the fact that that there would be no sort of regulatory agency determining whether or not Bailey's had, uh, you know, made the correct determination about how to de how to create a price index around water, like so. Who would be? Would it be the the commodities, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange that makes that determination, or is it the Commodity Future Trading, or the so, CFTC? Who yeah. makes who makes those rules? Who makes all this stuff up? Well, like the, who's in charge, Steve? Oh, so, <laughs> so, you know, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, um, as its name indicates, you know, is uh, concerned with the regulation of um, both physical derivatives contracts, so based on underlying physical commodities, oil, corn, wheat, um, and in this case, water. Yeah. Or they also regulate financial commodities, such as um, um, futures contracts for interest rates or foreign exchange rates, uh, uh -huh. mortgage rates, okay. so on and so forth. Um, so what they what they're trying, what they do, uh, and, th and this is actually something I discovered in the process of interviewing the new product staff at the CFTC. Um, they are they are pretty well overwhelmed with uh, new product new contract proposals. Uh -huh. uh, I don't know how large the staff is, but they get about a thousand uh, new contract proposals a year. And so, the default, unless uh, they see something you know a real red flag, is to allow uh, the exchanges, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the Intercontinental Exchange the Minneapolis Grain Exchange, et cetera, et cetera, to self-certify uh, that their contract is in conformity with uh, uh, with CFTC rules and core principles. And those core principles and rules would be the things that, that would uh, determine whether or not there could be manipulation of that market or those contracts. Is that right? Right. And, and in the article that I uh, wrote, I, mean, I, I kind mm -hmm. of went through uh, a couple of different scenarios uh, mm -hmm. because the 
both both the staff, like this executive director of the California Water Association, uh, did not feel that the contract would be of great interest um, to commercial users. And they track the data. Uh, it's not publicly available, uh, but the, the, the staff tracks the data until it becomes large enough so that it has to be reported to the CFTC, that there's enough trading data, enough um, uh -huh. volume of transactions. But at this point, um, there have been relatively few trades uh, made, um, you know, in this contract using this index, which indicates hmm. to them that the commercial water users are, you know, relying on their own um, pricing models for negotiating uh, water sales in California. Mm -hmm. Now, the the part of the part the the, the the issue that really concerns me is when you've got a hedge fund which mm -hmm. is primarily a financial investor mm -hmm. uh buying water rights along you know a, a major uh tributary in the united states i mean major mm -hmm. river in the united states going to mexico because uh at least in theory um a hedge fund would have um, insider information about fiscal um, supply and demand for water mm -hmm. yes. um, since they would have the right to trade this water and have you know some some considerable influence over over its price and then again in theory they could use that inf insider information to uh, trade the futures contract uh, in that and where you know where volatility really gets i think i use the word supercharged mm. um in uh in the in that march article i wrote mm -hmm. is that um more and more physical commodity derivatives contracts are traded uh overwhelmingly by automated trading systems yes so this is a computer talking to a computer and the human intervention is in the is, is really in the design of the trading algorithm. So if somehow the trading algorithm, you know, circumvents whatever safety guards that the exchange is supposed to have to prevent extreme price volatility, yeah, uh, then you have what is euphemistically called a computer glitch. Or yet, or or less euphemistically called a flash crash. <laughs> yeah, and there have been a lot of a lot of commodity f flash crashes, but they're not um, because most of these trades are uh, closed out in, during a trading session. You don't see those crashes rep uh, being reported. Uh huh. That is, they're not they're not in the publicly available data. The exchanges are supposed to report them right uh to to the cftc so i guess but they don't have to report them to the you know to the public at large uh no i mean when, when when there's something when there's a really spectacular what they call a market event uh -huh. um for example back in april uh the west texas intermediate crude oil contract collapsed um i think about 55 dollars 
a, a barrel in one day. It went negative for the first time in history. Mm. Wow. Um, and that was a spectacular uh, market and regulatory failure. Um, and there's still, uh, how can I say this? There still hasn't been proper investigation um, okay. of that uh, price collapse and subsequent rebound. But, you know, uh, there's a lot of smaller kind of, um, uh, you would call exactly crashes, but uh, incidents of extreme volatility. And what's, what happens when you have extreme volatility, price volatility in a contract, is the exchanges charge a lot more money to trade in that contract. Um, it's called margin collateral. It's the money that you put down as a percentage of the bid that you make on a contract. Okay. And, um, you know, let's say that the National Oceanic uh, and Atmospheric Administration is right. And we are in the beginning of uh, a 10-year drought is what they are forecasting Yes. Uh, for the United States, not just for the Western United States, the whole United States. Oh, yeah. We're already seeing it here on New England, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I mean it's... it's uh, it is absolutely it's, happening. It, it, it's happening, and um, you're going to have uh, more pressure uh, for these uh, physical water sales, and if it's you know, let's just say a really large farming organization bidding mm -hmm. uh, against the hedge fund. Uh, it's not really a competitive bid because, you know, hedge funds have much deeper pockets than even your largest corporate farm. Like like a Tyson, for instance. Not, well, not that they, that's, not I mean, a, that's not a corporate farm, although oh, they well, they're no, that's right. They're not a commodity trade. But say it's somebody say it's Archer Daniel Midland. Right. Or Cargill. They grow a lot of grain. That, that's what I think of well, when you talk yeah, about like a large industrial. As far as I know, they're not, um, you know, speculating on water. But, but it does, you know, the the a contract a contract that um, maybe fails the first year, um, the um, exchanges. I mean, they've already got the computer program set up, it doesn't cost them a lot to trade a program. And so a contract can fail, I mean, can fail economically. Yeah. But, you know, it's been legally approved. So why not, you know, keep it on the market and see if eventually the contract takes off. But Steve, does any of does this stuff affect? I mean, where, where does this meet the consumer or say, you know, the agricultural concern? You know, what is this? Are, are these trades? Because I want to talk quickly about I, I kind of want to move on to from this and talk about those water sharing investment partnerships, um, which is something that you steered me toward to read about. But 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 are these you know future contracts, do they ultimately have an impact on the prices that consumers are going to pay or farmers are going to pay in the coming years? I mean, that, that's to me what, what sort of scares me about this kind of speculation in something that is so fundamentally essential to all life form, um, you know, that, that somebody is making a buck on this, but not really thinking through whether or not this is going to have an impact on, um, 
you know, on, on how we grow our food or how expensive food is going to become, for example. If we, have, if we have to short people on water or there's not enough water for farms, there's not enough ir irrigation, uh, you know, like wh wh where is that, where does all this stuff end up? Because I get that somebody is going to make money on it, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out whether this is all just pieces of paper being traded electronically at lightning speed or whether this is really going to, you know, where the rubber is going to meet the road for you and me, right? And ratepayers around the around the country. Well, I can tell you, I can tell you what um, the theory, market theory, says. <laughs> okay. That, um, that the trading, the trading in futures prices, excuse me, trading of futures contracts, um, and there's contracts that are traded off exchange called over the counter that were extremely influential in the 2008-2009 um, market blow-up. Uh-huh. I don't want to get into, you know, too much detail, but um, the theory is that a properly regulated uh, futures market is supposed to, um, you know, result in a contract where the, uh, the benchmark, a benchmark price in futures is supposed to result by the end of the contract and the benchmark price is supposed to guide um, the, the physical trading of commodities so um, for example uh, if you have an oil contract or a corn contract yeah let's talk about corn because that was a place where i know it had a big impact the futures market had a huge impact on livestock farming for example well, yeah, okay, so you have, um, you know, you've, you've got this um, commodity that is perhaps the most, I think it is the most widely traded uh, grain contract in the world. Mm -hmm. And it is, has, you know, the, the commodity has, um, you know, uses for feed, for uh, starch, um, for you know, bioenergy, I mean, there's a lot of different. Uses. Absolutely. High fructose corn syrup. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Right. So um, if the, you know, if the price of that, of that commodity is so volatile that a commercial user of the commodity will say, I honestly don't know what, you know, this market doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the price doesn't, you know, really doesn't have much to do with market fundamentals, supply, demand, logistics. I mean, there's, you know, weather events. I mean, if, you know, sure. but because usually they're able to sort of factor those into the price. Um, and then at that point, when the price is too volatile to be explained, it will just exit the market, the futures market, and take their chances on the cash market. Um, but, you know, in, in, in a, in a well-functioning market, for example, your grain elevator will look at the futures price. They'll, they'll say, okay, well, I've got, you know, this amount of insurance expense and this amount of storage expense, this amount of equipment replacement expense, and so on and so forth. And they then make, uh, they take the, that that price and they uh, they offer to the farmer um, 
X price for forward contracting the farmer's production. So the farmer will need right. so I'm going to, you know, forward contract half of my corn harvest because a, I need the money now yeah. for operational, uh, you know, expenses, maybe even living expenses if they don't have an off farm job. Um, and I'm going to lock in a price um, so that, you know, the, my, my, so I've got, I got my expenses covered and then I'll take the rest of my harvest and uh, hope that in the interim, um, in the interim six months or whatever, eight months, um, the, uh, the price will increase and I'll be able to make, make some money on a higher price. But if the futures price is not, um, is not reliable, doesn't set a reliable benchmark, then, um, you know, then the market goes to hell in a handbasket. Now, with the water con with the water contract, you know, it, the, the underlying asset is so much smaller than a corn contract because you've got uh, both um, what are called county elevators all over, you know, all over the United States. Then you have the terminal elevators on the major uh, rivers and a couple of, you know, sort of well, major ports, uh, New Orleans, um, Long Beach, um, trying to remember the other major ones, uh, Duluth. Um, and there, um, you know, you, you, you've got a lot of, of, um, a lot of commodity that can, you know, form the underlying basis. But with this, this water contract, I mean, you know, I know it's a lot of, it's a lot of water use for California, but compared to water use in the United States, it's not that much water. It's not that much water for sale. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the, it would. It, I mean, like, let's say, let's say, for example, that um, the you know Valley's water in London said, okay, well, we, you know, we've got this, um, uh, you know, California water price index. And now we're going to have a Texas water price index. Um, and we're going to link these two price indexes through uh, the magic financial engineering. Well, now you've got a larger market, right? And okay. so maybe you have a larger market uh, participant, you know, trading. Right. And, and then, and then it, you know, then in the contract may become more price influential but again it, it depends on whether uh first whether commercial water users find it of interest and then i think as i indicated in the march 3rd article it's very unlikely that um a financial speculator would invest directly in a water futures contract maybe with the exception of the hedge fund that you know owns this um, the California River water rights because they would have direct knowledge of the supply and demand. But um, one of the most um, influential investment vehicles for commodities are called commodity index funds. And so there you are bundling um, up to 25 different commodity contracts in a fund formula. And the fund formula uh, is you know, basically sold to investors that have long-term 
um, financial interests. So it's not like the short-term interest of uh, commodity users and traditional speculators. It's like pension funds. Right, right. Very long, you know, long-term investment horizons. And so they generally, um, as they say in the business, bet on the price of the index to increase. And so, and then they, you know, basically they, they risk weight. Uh, the commodity index funds Back in 2008, 2009, you had uh, oil-heavy contracts. Yep. Then you had uh, some, you know, relatively balanced um, agricultural commodity index funds. But in the case of in the case of water, it is. I don't think it's inconceivable that you would have a, a water futures contract bundled together with some emissions offset futures contracts mm-hmm. um, and that that would be sold, um, you know, to um, ecologically minded investors. Well, there's, there's these ESG investors, right? Right. You know, like Domini. Um, and uh, they would, you know, look at this and say, well, this is good. They're you know, managing uh, water prices, water scarcity, and it's it's bundled with um, offset contracts that are supposed to make help make you know companies green. Right, right. Um, and if you didn't understand the underlying contracts or how they're traded, um, especially a retail investor could um, could put money in it. But m- more importantly, you you'd have institutional investors um, like these pension funds saying, you know, we're going green. Right. They're selling it. It's greenwashing, even if it's not really particular. We unfortunately have to take a short break for a sponsor drop. And by that, I just mean, you know, a short break. And we'll be right back with Steve Supan. So stay tuned, everybody. We're going to talk more about this. Really? Oh, my God. (laughs) Really, I'm way over my head here. But bear with me, folks. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
Okay, we're back. Steve Sapan from the IATP, which is the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. There's so many acronyms in my world that it's 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 really kind of disturbing. Um, we only have, unfortunately, only a few minutes. I'm dismayed to see we've already used up almost 40 minutes here. Um, but I, I wanted you to quickly talk about water sharing investment partnerships, because that is being, uh, you know, that was uh, in that uh, Nature Conservancy piece that you sent me that was being promoted as sort of the way uh, to manage, um, you know, water uh, so that, you know, rural and versus urban and people, it's kind of like a little bit like a cap and trade thing, right? Um, with emissions, speaking of, you know, that sort of green technology or green, you know, green type of investment. So you're, you're, you're going to say, well, you have a lot of water, uh, you know, in this rural area, but we really need some more water here over in the city. So, so you're going to, you know, we're going to trade or we're going to buy that water from you. I mean, the whole thing of buying water is just, there's something very wrong with this fundamentally to me. So try, you know, sell me on well, why I, this I, is I, the I best way to go forward. I think it is the best way to go forward in the way that the Nature Conservancy has framed it because um, it, it pretty much um, uh, explained in terms of- Yeah, I didn't of, think so. Uh, the economic function of water, and water has a lot of other functions uh, besides uh, economic. And, you know, when when you consider that 90% of um, water use in the four um, case studies they provide in, uh, in Texas, California, and Australia, um, when it's agricultural, you would mm -hmm. think, well, how do you improve uh, agricultural water use. Well, you could uh, improve the irrigation technology, so no more, no more, uh, you know, spraying and having water yeah. evaporate. Um, you could, um, right? You know, reduce or even eliminate the acreage on which it's planted, so no more, um, you know, planting of lettuce in desert-like conditions. Um, you know, everything would have to go into greenhouses. Right. Uh, you could uh, use gray water. Gray water is, um, you know, water that has been treated from sewage, which is, you know, at this point they've refined water treatment to the point where it is, um, uh, it has, uh, you know, the safety characteristics of drinking water. Um, you could, and, and, so you've got four or five methods by which you could uh, develop much more reasonable use of um, irrigated agriculture. But they're focused on one thing and one thing mm -hmm. alone, and that is metering the use of water by price, and especially for the purpose of uh, transferring right. rural water, or what they call low value use of water, uh, you know, to urban areas and its method in terms of, um, right. uh, you know, gross domestic product. I mean, how much gross domestic product do you, uh, do you generate? And I, I think, you know, the, the idea here, and they're, I mean, they're actually promoting a product. It's not that they're just doing an analysis. They, they're promoting this <laughs> water sharing investment partnership. And so essentially this is a kind of um, uh, ESG fund uh, uh, but specifically directed toward um, water water pricing, presumably in these three uh, areas where there are all already uh, is a water market in 
in Australia and the Murray Darling Basin in California and Texas. Um, and, and then they're assuming yeah. that, so there's, uh, their basic research is, so it's, you know, there's 37 countries now where there's so, some form of water markets. So water markets in the sense of, you know, you're always going to have a, a water delivery cost that's going to get absorbed somewhere. Uh, but then you have, yeah, uh, you know, the water, the pricing of the water itself, which is a, which is a different issue. And, you know, basically what they are doing here with this report is um, scouting for investors. Um, and to, uh, yeah. you know, move toward not just trading water on the basis of um, legal water rights agreements, but actually trading the water rights themselves. Right. This is what I, I find this all very alarming. I, I mean, I, I, you know, and, and, and I can see like other countries managing to do this on a sort of more or less equitable basis. But I don't see that happening in the United States where, you know, we have this, uh, you know, predatory capitalism running rampant through this nation on virtually every you know, aspect of our daily lives. And so the idea of allowing companies uh, to ac both acquire water rights, uh, to buy and sell them amongst each other and with other large concerns, including hedge funds and, you know, and the, re and, and the rest of the financial institutions. I mean, I, I just don't see how, say, a low-income community that, for instance, you know, I'm thinking about like down in North Carolina, you know, where uh, all the hog farms are, you know, basically rendering land uninhabitable and and the residents have no recourse because they can be outspent by a factor of you know 1000 to 1 in legal fees and i don't see how the water business is going to ultimately be any different from that where big companies with lots of money are going to swoop in like nestle is doing right now are going to swoop in buy up these aquifers buy up these water sources and then make a huge amount of money Selling it yeah, back to the people in the surrounding Nestle communities, in California, and, uh, you know, where, we, they, uh, where they underreported hugely each year for 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 more than a decade yeah. on how much water they were bottling. I mean, they were basically getting uh, tons and tons of free water right. there uh, that their you know water uh, uh, yeah. sale agreement didn't qualify them to. Well, I think one, one thing about uh, you know, about water that you already see uh, in the Colorado River uh, Basin is that uh, there, there are water bores now uh, on the Arizona border because of this diversion of water to urban settlements, you know, on the edge of deserts um, and to the use of, you know, the use of water um, in open field irrigation, which um, I don't think is going to mm -hmm. be uh, uh, sustainable. Um, certainly, you know, as this drought mm -hmm. continues, um, and so I, I think so much of the uh, of what right, right. of what's trying to be done with uh, proposing to 
um, enforce reasonable use of water through um, pricing is going to have to probably be done um, through reasonable use of regulation. And right now, that doesn't seem to be right. right. It's just not of interest to um, to investors. Uh, but hopefully, uh, if this water right. futures contract uh, does not does not succeed, there will not be a second contract. I mean, that would be uh, something to hope for. Right. Well, uh, Steve, unfortunately, we have to leave it there because Amanda has to get on and uh, and um, and people really can only listen for about 35 minutes before. they. <laughs> but um, thank you so much for trying to explain this to me. I, I know I'm the worst possible student um, for financial uh, education, um, but I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. And another time I'd like to talk about nanotechnology, which I know you've been doing a lot of work around. So, um, but I really appreciate your time today and thank you so much for joining us and trying to explain this very complex business. Um, and something that we really all have to pay attention well, to because we are going to run out of water I mean, and it is going to be water wars, uh, right? Water I mean, well, I mean, the, the, uh, uh, especially if our aquifers, are not being replenished um, at the rate that we're using them. That's that's what's going to drive uh, water crises. Yeah, and it's not just going to be here. It's going to be in other countries. And we didn't get to talk about water grabbing versus land grabbing, but I see that happening down the road with this as well. So anyway, that'll be another show, Steve. Thank you so much today. Thank you to my uh, sponsor, and thank you, Amanda, as always, for your uh, patience um, with <laughs> with my show. And up, uh, see you next week, folks. We'll be talking more about more things like water. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends, and please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.